When you buy a book in a store, there's like a sentence on the inside of the cover, all rights reserved, do not infringe copyright. But when you, um, when you download that book, you get 20,000 words of boilerplate saying like, by being dumb enough to buy this book <laughs> in electronic form, you agree that we're allowed to come over to your house and punch your grandmother and wear your underwear <laughs> and make long distance calls and eat all the food in your fridge to disagree, to, you know, to disagree, uh, just, uh, or, you know, to agree, just stand there saying, no, 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 I don't agree. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, Gary Parker, and we've got a wonderful interview this week. Actually, it's a two-parter, uh, another two-part interview. I'm talking with Corey Doctro. He has done all sorts of things. He's an author. He's an activist. He's worked with the EFF, and he's just a really, really interesting guy to talk to. So I brought him on to talk about some recent developments with digital rights management and copyright. This stuff affects you every single day, believe it or not. And uh, most people just don't know about it. And so I'm going to get you all up to speed and we're going to do that in two different parts. That's a kind of a lot to take in. So uh, we're going to break it up into two chunks and we'll start off by kind of giving you a little history of copyright. And there's some very interesting stuff there. Trust me, it's going to be a, a lot of fun. Uh, and then next week, we'll follow up with the whole digital rights management thing, which basically is copy protection. Uh, so it's all the companies out there who are trying to sell you stuff and yet somehow not really let you use it the way you want to use it. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that. It's going to be a lot of fun. But before we get to the first part of our interview with Corey Doctorow, let's start with some weekly news. And uh, first of all, for all you Apple folks out there, uh, make sure if you've got the latest Apple operating system, if you've got a laptop or a computer running High Sierra, which is their uh, the new operating system that they released uh, in September, make sure you get that updated. Of course, this is always this is the mantra, right? Always update, update, um, patch early, patch often, as we say. Um, we're talking about patching. We're talking about fixing the holes, fixing the bugs uh, in your software. So patch early, patch often. That always applies. Uh, just want to bring it to your attention that there were a couple pretty egregious password-related bugs found in High Sierra that Apple has fixed. Uh, if you have the latest and greatest version of the High Sierra um, operating system, uh, one of them had to do with um, if you did it just right, if you went to go look at your password hint, if you put a password hint on some things, they would just show you the password. <laughs> That's not good. Uh, so instead of giving you a hint uh, that hopefully only would help you remember what that password is, it just tells you the password. So that's not good. So you want to fix that. Uh, there was also another bug in the uh, the keychain software that that Apple Mac OS uses to uh, keep your keychain or keep your passwords uh, saved for you in a certain way, so that once you've logged in, you can reuse those passwords. But other applications are not supposed to be able to poke in there and kind of root around. But Apparently, there is a bug in High Sierra um, that will allow some applications, if they're smart, to kind of poke around in there and pull out some passwords. Never good. So those are pretty egregious. Uh, go get your Apple High Sierra OS fixed. That is the absolute latest uh, operating system. If you're not on that, it probably shouldn't be an issue. But as always, patch early, patch off, and get keep your operating systems, keep your applications, keep all of your software up to date. And in some Android news, uh, the latest Android operating system, the, the mobile operating system that runs on so many smartphones, uh, actually way more than iPhones, I believe. There's a lot more Android phones than there are iPhones in the world. Uh, they've got their brand new operating system. They always, they, they, they name them sequentially with some starting letter and it's always some dessert, right? You might remember Jelly Bean or Marshmallow or Nougat or some of the more recent ones. Well, the most recent one, the one that just came out is called Oreo. Um, and it's got some really good security features. Um, Android has had some issues in the past. 
Uh, well, everybody has issues. So it's always a matter of how, how you address those issues. And Android has got some really good uh, security features coming up in the Android Oreo operating system. If you have the opportunity to get that, um, uh, highly recommend it. Uh, generally speaking, as these operating systems get older and the big releases come out, they're adding more and more security features. Um, so, you know, it's always best to kind of stay up to date, not just kind of in general with a little patch releases, like we were just talking about, like a little point releases, like going from 10.1 to 10.11 or 10.2 or those kind of things, those kind of small updates. Those are usually the security updates. Uh, but the big updates, I personally, I usually wait, you know, like a couple of weeks before I upgraded my devices because they always find something, some glitches that they didn't catch until they released it to everybody. Um, and the security fixes usually come right away. So it's it, the, the big releases usually don't have major security fixes. They usually release those if for the old versions as well. Um, so you can kind of wait. They're usually just big feature releases. So, you know, for like when iOS 11 came out, I still haven't upgraded to iOS 11 um, on my iPhone 6S because uh, I'm kind of waiting for them to iron out some of the, the early bugs. But um, these big feature releases also usually have, because it's such a big issue today, um, they also have security fixes in them, security architecture fixes, like they're just making things in general designed better for security. Um, so keep up to date as you can. That's part of the problem with Oreo, or, sorry, with Android phones is because the ecosystem is so fractured. We've talked about this on the on the podcast before, on the show before. Um, there are so many different manufacturers of Android phones, and so unlike Apple, which you know, love it or hate it is a walled garden. It's a whole ecosystem. Apple owns everything soup to nuts. They own the hardware, they own the software, they have managed to work out all the deals with the, the cell phone providers to give them direct access to your phone. So when there's updates, Apple fixes it, you get those immediately and directly from Apple. Android, on the other hand, goes through, you know, the both the manufacturers like LG and Samsung, um, uh, the, the, you know, the physical device manufacturers it has to go through them. And it also has to go through the carriers like Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile and all the, the wireless carriers They each kind of have their own, these little milestones along the way that where they have to kind of get approval and they have to do testing and yada, yada, yada. Um, and that makes it hard to get these security patches out in a timely manner. And in fact, in a lot of cases, you can't get them at all. Some of these older phones, just uh, because the, the, the phones don't support it, the hardware doesn't support it. Um, or the manufacturers won't support it, or the, the wireless carriers don't want to support it, you can't even get the updates, which is really bad. So uh, unfortunately with Android, you kind of need to keep buying new phones and keep up to date to make sure that you can get the latest security. Now, uh, one of the things that Oreo is doing is they're, they've got this thing called Project Treble. And what they've done is they've kind of re-architected, kind of re-shifted stuff around in the Android operating system to make the parts that the, the manufacturers and the wireless carriers really care about very, very isolated. Uh, and what that should mean, hypothetically going forward, uh, theoretically, is that when Android has a security fix that has nothing to do with, you know, does it work with this particular LG phone's speaker software? Uh, does it work with T-Mobile's certain application that they put on everybody's phone, yada, yada, yada. So, it bypasses all that and keeps everything nice and separate so that when there's a security fix that comes out, it should be able to be propagated right through and straight through to the consumer. So that's a really important feature, um, a design feature of Android Oreo that should make getting the security features, um, uh, security patches out to customers quickly. So anyway, uh, that's coming up. If you have the opportunity to upgrade to that, please do. And uh, great features. I'm glad to see Android doing that. All right, now one more thing, and I hate to beat this dead horse, but uh, you will keep learning more. 
And I just want to make sure that everybody's kept up to date on the whole Equifax debacle. There's been another, well, there's, there's been, more time has passed and we've learned more about what's, what happened and how things kind of unfolded. And unfortunately, a lot of these things aren't, aren't good. And it's, it's really looking bad. Um, I read a naked security article. It's a, it's a nice blog from Sophos. Um, one of the antivirus makers, they have a really great blog called naked security, uh, which I watch all the time. And they've got a really good article to kind of summarize some of the new stuff that's come out over the last couple of weeks. So I just wanted to kind of catch you up a little bit on the things that we've learned in the, in the, in the past few weeks that you might want to know. So, uh, first of all, you know, Equifax CEO, Richard Smith, of course, when this whole thing broke and became so obvious that it was so bad was called to the called on the carpet by um, several uh folks from congress to basically be publicly tarred and feathered <laughs> and uh you know questioned about why they did this why they did that and let the senators yell at them and get some screen time and you know look like they're out there fighting for their constituents which i'm sure most of them are but the problem is is these kind of things tend to come and go so they have hearings you know, everyone gets their screen time where they're shown berating these companies that have, you know, misled or somehow harmed their consumers and all these things, you know, asking all the tough questions. But then in the end, what actually happens, what actually gets done, often not much. So that's where we as um, consumers and we as particularly citizens uh, need to be holding our representatives feet to the fire and making sure that something comes out of this. So anyway, let me let me just kind of go over a few of the things we've learned. Um, so let, let's start by just reviewing the timeline of, of what what kind of happened. So there was a bug in web server software and web servers are the computers that when you know, when you go to Amazon.com or Equifax.com, uh, these websites to view their web content, you're hitting a web server and behind all that is software running on big computers that you say, show me this web page, and it says, okay, here's here's your web page, among other things. To do all that and to make these web pages do really cool, fancy things, there's all these technologies behind there that I'm not going to get into, but there's one in particular by a company called Apache uh, called Struts, and Apache Struts had this big bug in it, and somebody responsibly disclosed this bug to Apache, uh, another, which is to say they did it privately so that Apache could go off and fix it and come up with a fix and release that fix before the bug was made public. So somewhere in late uh, February, I believe, um, Apache was made aware of this bug. And within a week, uh, they had figured out a fix to it. They had published their fix and went public and said, hey, we, everybody, we've got a bug here. Here's the fix. Go apply this fix right away. And of course, once you do that, you've also alerted the bad guys too, right? So as soon as the bad guys know this fit, that this bug is out there, they are immediately, and I do mean immediately, going to find some avenue to try to exploit this bug. So it's now it's a race. So now everybody out there has heard of this bug, knows there's a knows it exists, knows what it's about. Uh, and the bad guys are hurrying up to try to exploit it. And the good guys are out there trying to fix their software so that the bad guys can't. And Equifax was made aware of this both directly from Apache uh, and from an, an agency called US CERT, C-E-R-T, which is Computer Emergency Readiness Team. Uh, and US CERT is um, out there trying to help companies stay on top of these security issues. So it was notified by two different, two different places. And I guess supposedly Equifax's policy is usually to um, fix these things within 24 to 48 hours. But for whatever reason, they just didn't. They were notified multiple times. They did not fix it. They've got a huge security team. This, according to this article, they've got 225 people working in the security department, but nobody applied this fix. 
So Equifax, their, their web servers were vulnerable and remained vulnerable. And the bad guys knew about it because uh, Apache, you know, said, we've got a, we've got a bug. Here's the fix. So it wasn't till May, actually. It, um, so if, as you recall, I said that the bug was kind of released in early March. So in mid-May, it turns out that Equifax was getting actively breached. They were being hacked on this bug that they did not fix. So that's over two months later. Now, it wasn't even until July 29th that they even figured out that they were being hacked. So Equifax was being hacked in mid-May, but they didn't even figure out that they were being hacked until July 29th, over, well over two months later. Um, so then once they figured out that they, had, that they were being hacked, they immediately applied the fix way, way, way too late. And then they started doing their investigation to figure out what, you know, what had been, what had been breached, what had been taken, what might've been at risk. And it took them over a month to figure that out and finally tell the public on September 7th. It's just, it, it was just a case study in how not to handle security issues like this, but it does get worse. So we found out during this, that Equifax doesn't bother to encrypt all this data. They have your social security number, your name, your address, your birthday. They have all this, all this information that is so critical to you as a, well, you're not the customer, you're the product that, that is so important to you that they would just blithely leaving on their servers completely unprotected. So when the bad guys got in there, it was a huge treasure trove and they had, it was just there for the taking. So that was bad. And also in the meantime, we've, they've come back and said, oh, there was another two and a half million people that we think were affected. So it brings, brings the total from 143 million to 145 and a half million. I guess that may seem like a drop in the bucket by comparison. <laughs> um, but so, you know, we found even more people that were affected. And just just to pile on to, the, to to how bad this really is, according to the article, the IRS was awarded a $7.25 million no-bid contract to provide identity proofing and anti-fraud services from the U.S. government. One of the senators actually said, uh, and this is funny, quote, you realize to many Americans right now that it looks like you're giving Lindsay Lohan the keys to the mini bar. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. So there's one more thing I want to let you know about this, and then we'll move on to the interview. Uh, and that is that apparently, and I haven't noticed this myself, but I'm uh, the reports are saying that a lot of the credit bureaus are trying to talk people into going to a credit lock instead of a credit freeze. Uh, if you recall in previous episodes, I told you about credit freezes. That basically says that nobody can query your credit report. Nobody knew. Anybody you've, that's, that's already you already have credit with should be able to still access your report if they need to. Um, but anybody, if you're applying for a credit card, if you're applying for a loan, if you're trying to get a, maybe a new bank account, if you're trying to apply for a job even sometimes, these are often things that will trigger a credit, uh, credit query. All of those will be blocked until you thaw your account and then you probably should refreeze it when uh, after that. It's a pain in the butt. Let's face it, it's a pain in the butt. But when you do a credit freeze, no new credit can be opened in your name until you thaw your credit and then um, allow that to happen. So that should mean that the that even if the bad guys get all your info, they shouldn't at least be able to open a new, new credit in your name as long as your credit is frozen. But they're pushing these things called credit locks, and I'm honestly I'm not even sure what they are. There's no legal thing around it. It's just some service they offer. But I think the key to remember here is they hate credit freezes because basically you're stopping them from making money off of you. They make money off of you by providing your credit report. Um, so, you know, a credit lock is some sort of nebulous thing that they're trying to push that isn't really a credit freeze. 
uh, I would stick with a credit freeze. Um, if you can't do a credit freeze, at least do a fraud warning. Uh, the fraud warning is a little is completely free uh, to everybody, but you have to renew it every 90 days. And all that really does is force them to do a little more due diligence before they do anything with your credit. They would call you or somehow contact you to say, hey, is this really you that's trying to open up a credit card or a loan or whatever? And uh, puts an extra check in there, but they don't have to. It's not really regulated. So it's a, it's a much lighter weight thing. But if you are opening a lot of credit or um, uh, change credit cards and things like that, often, you know, credit freeze, you know, maybe, maybe tough, but my recommendation, if you can handle it for sure is to do a credit freeze. You have to call all three bureaus to ask for that. Uh, it's a pain in the butt, but I recommend you do it. All right. So we'll wrap up the news for now. I'm going to actually come back to a little bit of more news at the end of the show. When I give you my tip of the week, uh, we're going to be talking about something called Blueborn, which is a really, really ugly, uh, Bluetooth oriented vulnerability that affects literally billions of devices around the world. You're definitely going to want to tune in for that uh, or stay tuned for that. So we'll talk about that at the end of the show, along with the tip of the week that goes with that. And now we are going to talk to Corey Doctro, uh, again, uh, activist, copyright reformist, uh, member of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and all around interesting guy and author. Uh, let's talk to Corey Doctro about copyright. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. All right, so Cory Doctorow is a science fiction author, he's an activist, he's a journalist and a blogger, uh, he's the co-editor of Boing Boing, and the author of young adult novels like Homeland, Pirate Cinema, and Little Brother, uh, which by the way I've recommended multiple times in this podcast, fantastic book, uh, and novels for adults like Rapture of the Nerds, Makers, and most recently Walk Away. Uh, he's a former European director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, another organization that I love dearly that I talk about multiple times, and uh, co-founded the UK group uh, Open Rights Group. So, Corey, welcome to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hi. <laughs> so, okay, so you're an activist for copyright reform, uh, and you are a proponent of Creative Commons, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. So, uh, copyright is something I think most people just never think about. Uh, they probably, you know, they probably see the word copyright on the books they read, but other than that, they, they probably just think it doesn't affect them. And yet, really, it's something, especially today in the digital world, we are literally interacting with 
every day. So what I'm hoping to do today is kind of bring our audience in and help them understand how much effect all these copyright things really do affect them on a daily basis. Uh, and, and especially now that we're getting into the digital age, you know, every time you're reading a book on a Kindle, you're watching a movie on Netflix, you're streaming videos on YouTube, all these things come into play. So first of all, let's back up and find a little bit what the basic question, what is copyright? What was its original purpose? Why do we have it at all? Because uh, it's definitely, in my view, drifted from what it was supposed to be, and we'll talk about that. But what, what was the original intent? Why do we have it? So those are um, those are all like contentious questions with that like a single answer that everyone agrees on. Um, but uh, so so let me give you kind of my perspective on this. So copyright has like uh, lots of different pl points of origin. You know, there's a 17th century British law called the Statute of Anne that was. Uh, uh, about who got to print which books and, and was really just like a salvo and a trade war between Scottish and English printers. Uh, there was um, the copyright clause in the Constitution. So this is called the Progress Clause to promote the progress of the useful arts and sciences. Congress uh, may grant monopolies of limited times to over maps and books to their authors. Uh, and then there are various um, uh, international agreements, uh, notably the World Trade Organization Agreement, the WTO, comes with uh, an agreement called the TRIPS that um, every WTO signatory, which is basically anyone who's got like electricity in the internet has to sign up to. <laughs> and so, you know, it's that in that sense, there's there's some like widespread global norms about copyright and they all have a variety of rubrics. But I think that the way to understand copyright best is to look at how it's made, um, because you can learn a lot about what something is for by looking at where it comes from. And generally, here's how copyright works. You have an entertainment industry, uh, which, like every other industry, has a lot of different players. And there are some people who are like outliers in it who, you know, you're not sure if they're really part of the industry. And then you have some people who are definitely part of the industry. You know, like if you think about finance, right, we we all know that like banks are part of the finance industry. We're pretty sure, you know, stock brokerages are part of the finance industry. Payday lenders, yeah, I think they're part of the finance industry. Giving your kid allowance, maybe not part of the finance industry, right? Yeah. So like there's all of the, there's this like spectrum of stuff. And um, the way that that uh, entertainment industry law tends to get made is you have these practices in, in um, how things are done in the industry. Everybody agrees that we're going to do it this way. We'll, we'll follow these norms. Like, you know, here's an example uh, right now. Copyright doesn't protect um, ideas. It only protects the expression of ideas. So like a specific detective novel, but not the idea of a detective novel. Mm. And yet, um, if you work in TV, one of the hottest areas of copyright licensing is for what's called formats. And that's something like um, who wants to be a millionaire or big brother. And it's not about like whether you, when you license the format, you don't just license, you know, the trademark to call your show who wants to be a millionaire Kazakhstan, <laughs> but you also license um, the idea of having that show, which is not copyrighted in any way at all. But, you know, everybody in the industry has pretty much gotten together and said, yeah, it suits us. That's how we'll deal with it. And um, what usually happens is things sort of trundle along on this kind of rough consensus, these gentlemen's agreements, and then there's a dispute, right? Someone like usually someone who's new to the industry or someone whose economics have collapsed and needs to try something new, <laughs> they break with the consensus and they do something different, right? Someone might just say, yeah, I'm going to call this like 
who wants to be a heptillionaire Kazakhstan instead of who wants to be a millionaire Kazakhstan. And I won't use any of their trademarks, but all of the other mechanics are going to be identical. You know, an example of that that's actually pretty recent is I'm going to make a game that's exactly Scrabble, except I'm going to call it Words with Friends. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Scrabble, any like patentable part of, of Scrabble is like long in the public domain. Uh, the copyrightable elements of Scrabble are not re reproduced in Words with Friends. And so, you know, you get someone who comes along and says, like, I'm going to take your million dollar ox and gore it. And then the entertainment industry and the upstarts, they go to a legislature and they say, we would like you to enshrine the way that we do things by gentlemen's agreement in law so that defectors from that agreement can be punished under the law. And, um, you know, this is how we get rules. And so... The rules nominally, the reason I say all of that is that nominally copyright is the rules that say who can copy things, who can display things, who can adapt things, um, who can perform things, a suite of what are called uh, exclusive rights that are reserved to rights holders. And that's like that on their face. That's what copyright does. But the reality is that um, the, the way that the laws have been made historically is by saying what happens when someone who's in the entertainment industry wants to copy, display, perform, adapt, or do any of those other exclusive rights that are, that are afforded to, to copyright holders? And not like what happens when, you know, your kid wants to write some fanfic and circulate it among their friends, uh, even though that's an adaptation and even though that's, that's part of the uh, – that, that, that in theory, that's covered under the law. And so the way that – copyright historically figured out the difference between a kid writing fanfic and a, uh, um, you know, a company doing something that, that broke with their uh, consensus is they asked, it asked whether you were making or handling a copy of a work on the grounds that um, if you were making a copy of a record, you probably had a record factory. And if you had a record factory, then you were industrial. Right. Mm. Like that's what it means to be industrial is you've got a factory somewhere. You've got a machine. Right. Every copy of a book had a printing press near it. Every copy of a movie had a film lab near it. And so um, so, you know, technically this covers like kids in their mom and their parents basements. But practically, because like we only really trigger it when when copies are being made or handled, it really only affects people who are in the industry. And I happen to be in the entertainment industry. Right. I write you know, made up fairy tales that help you uh, traverse that long slog between the cradle <laughs> and the grave, right? And, and so, uh, you know, I'm not against there being rules, right? We, we, I, I like the idea that in this like highly technical industry with a lot of moving parts that we would have some rules. I may not think the rules are good or bad, but I think the first thing to talk about when we talk about what copyright is and why it matters to you is who the rules apply to. Because you can have really terrible copyright rules, but the reality is that almost no one is in the entertainment industry. And so although they might really mess up people who are in the entertainment industry, almost everyone else they're irrelevant to, except in a kind of attenuated, like, it would be nice if nobody got messed up way. But, but it, doesn't, it doesn't, you know, your day is not affected by it. Right. But then comes the internet. And everything on the internet works by making copies, right? Like, we, we talk about things like streaming, um, streaming is like a consensus hallucination, right? <laughs> because, because every stream has to be a download. Your computer can't show you a movie without getting a copy of the movie onto your computer, right? Like the internet is not made up of a cunning array of, you know, uh, toilet paper rolls and mirrors <laughs> that can 
send the picture to your house without making a copy of it. So there's copies. And when we say, oh, you're streaming it, what we actually mean is you're downloading it into a piece of software that doesn't have a save button. Right. But, but you know, you're still downloading it. It's, it is in, in like really important ways downloading. And so the internet, everything we do involves copying on the internet. You make a million copies before breakfast on the internet. Every click is dozens of copies of works. And copyright says that when an original creative work, even a very small one, is fixed in a tangible medium like on a piece of paper or on a hard drive, it immediately becomes copyrighted for the life of the creator plus 70 years. And so pretty much everything you are making copies of hundreds of times per second is copyrighted. And so now we get to this really weird thing because instead of making and handling copies being a thing that involves some very uh, abstract apparatus that only a small number of people who can presumably hire a lawyer to help them out has. Now we're making copies, you know, all day long. Everyone's doing it. Your, your, your toddler does it when she taps on the door of the Explorer button on YouTube, right? So now we have a set of rules that have like hair raising, terrifying penalties, you know, the, <laughs> On the internet, it can be $150,000 to $250,000 per download in, in damages, uh, both um, statutory and, and punitive. Uh, and um, these rules now apply literally to children who can't speak yet. And so this is where it starts to all break down because the internet is not a glorified video on demand service, right? The internet is a single wire that delivers to your house free speech, a free press, freedom of assembly, access to education, to health outcomes, employment, uh, you know, family life, and, and a host of other goods that are key to what we think of as living in a civilized society. And the idea that the, the one set of rules that will be the most important set of rules for regulating all of those activities are the rules that we made up to make sure that everyone who makes a police academy movie is dealt with fairly. <laughs> That's crazy, right? And and you know, and, and it's crazy not just for all the people who are supposed to follow the rules and can't, but it's also crazy for all the people who are supposed to follow the rules and can, right? So, you know, what we need a set of complicated technical rules for when Warner licenses Harry Potter copyrights to Universal so that Universal can build the Harry Potter theme park. It's just around the corner for me. It's an amazing theme park, right? Um, and those rules, they need to be complicated, nuanced, technical, because they're doing something high stakes, complicated, nuanced, and technical when they make those license arrangements. But a kid who lives in Universal Studio, who's 10 years old, and is writing a piece of Harry Potter fanfic, I'm going to go out on a limb and say no kids in the world have the sophistication and context to be uh, copyright attorneys at the age of 10. There are no Doogie Housers of law. <laughs> and so any kid who is writing Harry Potter fanfic in her mother's basement in Universal City is going to get it wrong. And even if she were uh, sophisticated enough, even if she were the prodigy of the law that Hollywood hopes that will produce, that she could, in fact, negotiate that deal. And she called up Universal and Warner, who, you know, are basically her neighbors if she lives in Universal City, and asked to speak to their general counsel to negotiate those deals. She would be told that no one there has the time to talk to her. 
So if we're going to make a set of rules that are simple enough for her to follow without getting them wrong every time, without, you know, committing what Hollywood tells us is, a, is an unforgivable crime every time, those rules will never be technical and nuanced enough to do the deals that Hollywood actually needs them to, to form a framework for. And if we're not going to do that, then we're just going to create a generation of scofflaws because kids aren't going to stop telling each other stories, right? And the fact that now they tell them on the internet, that doesn't make an activity that is older than copyright. You know, like literally the oldest literature we have is copied from other people, right? Like the um, early Hebrews stole Genesis from the Babylonians, right? <laughs> like literally the oldest stories we have about like the origin <laughs> of the planet, they come from uh, people who are copying other people. So that activity, that's ingrained, right? Like we are descended from organisms that six billion years ago figured out how to start copying themselves. Uh, we have a name for organisms that don't copy. We call them extinct, right? right? So it's in the DNA. That's what DNA is. It's a copying machine. And so like we are just not ever, never, never, never going to stop kids from telling stories. So either we need to exempt the vast majority of people from rules that were designed for the entertainment industry, for the vast majority of the activities that they undertake, or we need to simplify the rules that the entertainment industry has said that it absolutely needs in order to have a functional orderly industry. We need to simplify them to the point where they're no longer fit for purpose for them. And this is our great conundrum right now, is that like the way that the rules about whether or not you get to know, for example, if the IRS website is secure enough to take your taxes, the first barrier to anyone who wants to make a disclosure about, the, about that website, that first barrier is copyright. And that yeah. makes no sense at all. Right. If only the Babylonians had had DRM. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll, yeah, talk, we'll yeah, talk about exactly. it in a minute. <laughs> so I want to back up and make one point. Because, uh, in the history of copyright, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that they, they, there was a need to strike a balance between the public good and having a system in place that would incentivize creators to create. Because if, as soon as I create something, somebody else can run off with that and, and make profit from it, then there's, what's, what's my incentive? It's obviously, some artists will do it just because they want to create the art. But there was always this trade-off. There's always this balance. And, it, and, and you're talking about the entertainment industry, which is another good segue into some of this history. You had said it's uh, life of the author plus 70 years. That was not always the case. Um, it started out much, much shorter than that. And so along the, the lines, particularly along the lines as the movie and the, the recording industry have come along in the last century, we have been pushing, we've been moving those goalposts for a long time. And, and a lot of this is thanks to a cute little mouse we all like called Mickey Mouse, right? Tell us a little bit about how this has evolved because it didn't used to be that long. I'd like you to meet Dr. Andrea Pennington. She's an international speaker, best-selling author, and talk radio host of Liberate Your Authentic Self on America Out Loud. Andrea, when you meet someone who is not living the authentic life, what do you say to them? There's no reason to settle for anything less than an out loud life, and you deserve it. No matter what you might have been told or programmed or brainwashed into, you deserve to have a fabulous, out loud, kick-ass life. Well, listen, I, I look at you as a media guru. You, you've been on with a lot of the big shows. Uh, I want to ask you, how important is this platform, America Out Loud, to your overall mission? 
The America Out Loud platform is allowing me to really spread my wings and stretch out and share my truth in a way that I cannot do on other big media networks. Here I get to be my authentic out loud self. And yes, I'm a little quirky, a little nerdy and deeply spiritual. So this is a huge, huge gift to me and my brand. And I'm so grateful to be here. Well, our goal is to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs. AmericaOutloud.com. On-demand podcast or real-time talk radio with our streaming apps on both Android or Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. been pushing we've been moving those goalposts for a long time and, and a lot of this is thanks to a cute little mouse we all like called mickey mouse right tell us a little bit about how this has evolved because it didn't used to be that long sure so i just you know the reason i started where i did is that this is all like interesting wonkish stuff like which copyright rules are the best copyright rules but the most important question i think you know because that's where i started too but I, the thing that i've come to after more than a decade of doing this is that the most important rule is who is copyright apply to because like how bad or good the rules are is uh, is um, not nearly as important as who needs to follow the rules. Like really terrible rules that only a small number of people have to follow may be unjust, but the harm is very much contained. So with that all said, um, yeah, so copyright was originally this very limited monopoly. Uh, it started as 14 years renewable once by the author for another 14 years. And there has been this monotonic expansion of copyright's duration and also its scope. So it was originally books and maps, and then it was music, and then it was, you know, video games and software and all kinds of things. So it's just kind of blown up in terms of what it covers. Um, and the term extension, the, the extension of copyright into longer and longer terms, this has been a, a major project of the entertainment industry led um, not entirely, but primarily by Disney. Uh, Disney wants to expand copyright's term because uh, the earliest Mickey Mouse movies were set to go into the public domain in the 70s, and so they added another 20 years, and then they added another 20 years in 98, and, and so on and so on. Um, and uh, it's – so this is where, like, the, the closer you look at it, the more complicated the story gets. Because when you actually look at those early Mickey Mouse cartoons that they're worried about going into the public domain, virtually everyone who's ever looked at this has said – you know, back then, to get a copyright, you had to file some really specific paperwork with the Library of Congress, and then you had to put a very specifically formatted notice on a work to get that copyright. And Disney blew both of those things. <laughs> and those early Mickey Mouse movies are probably in the public domain today, <laughs> even with copyright term extension. But the cost of litigating that is more than those one or two early cartoons could ever be worth. I mean, Steamboat Willie is a perfectly fine three and a half minutes, but it's not worth $50 million of anyone's money. Yeah. Um, and, and so, um, you know, the, the, the copyright term extension has been this like steady ratchet. So the place where it gets really interesting is with the 1998 act where, uh, copyright terms were extended retrospectively. So instead of just saying, okay, from now on, the deal is if you make a copyrighted work, you get, 90 years of copyright, 70 years of copyright, your life plus a million years of copyright, whatever it is, what they said is all of those works that have existed before 
are about to get an extra 20 years. Now, the important thing here is that when you look at the Constitution and you look at the, the copyright clause, the progress clause, it says to promote the, pro the progress of the useful arts and sciences, co uh, Congress can make uh, monopolies of limited times. And um, there is no promotion of the useful arts and sciences. There's no new incentive to make works by giving people copyright on works that already exist, right? You could give Elvis Presley 10,000 years worth of copyright and his own personal copyright infringers disemboweling pike that he could personally <laughs> use to mete out rough justice on people who infringed his copyright. And Elvis Presley wouldn't record any more music, right? There's, there's no coherent explanation for an incentive to make more music in retrospective copyright terms. So it is, uh, it is economically incoherent. But it's also become a very popular subject. And, you know, we're about to hit Mickey Mouse copyright right. term, uh, cop, uh, expiry in a year, right, in 2018. And, you know, the legislative calendar these days is kind of a mess <laughs> because, you know, maybe we're going to get into a nuclear war and then also maybe we're going to deport 11 million people. So, uh, like, it's it's there may be bigger fish to fry for a change <laughs> than, than cartoon mice, uh, but, you know... Like, no one ever made money betting against Disney's legislative might. So it's yeah. hard to say. Uh, and certainly Disney is in um, dire straits right now for some definitions of dire straits because uh, of cord cutting. So Disney used to get $8 a month per cable subscription in the country basically for free because everybody got ESPN bundled in. And it was just free money, hundreds of millions of dollars of free money every year that they could just use to do other stuff. And now everyone's getting rid of uh, their, their cable packages, right? They're cord cutting, and in response, the cable operators are like, oh, if you don't like sports ball, we won't charge you eight bucks a month to look at sports ball channels. And so, you know, if you look at their investor calls recently, they're like, oh, my God, we just lost X hundred million dollars. And they also went like five hundred million dollars over budget on Shanghai Disneyland. And so, you know, <laughs> either that means that they're like they're going to be like hunkering down and trying to you know, take care of their own house or, or it means that they're going to be like maddened bulls riding into Congress and like demanding another 20 years come hell or high water. Who knows? Right. Hard to say. So that's a great segue in, uh, into the whole technological thing. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier as well, is that, you know, prior to the digital age, you know, making a copy of something was, was prohibitive for, for most people, certainly until uh, Gutenberg came around or whatever it was, you know, making copies was a pain in the butt. Now, in the seventies, we started getting things like cassette tapes and VHS tapes. And that's when things, when the entertainment industry really started freaking out. And I, I'll never forget some of the, some of the stories I saw about, uh, Oh, I always get the guy's names wrong, but the head Valente of the, Oh, Jack Valenti. Yes. You know, saying yeah. how the VHS tape was going to completely ruin the industry. No, it's and, the Boston strangler. The VHS is to the, is to the American <laughs> film industry as the Boston strangler is to a woman home alone. Right. And that was Jack. <laughs> And of course, it, it, you know, when, in, in retrospect, what ended up happening, it probably saved the industry a lot of ways, the whole movie rental system and the VHS tapes. And, but mm. nevertheless, these guys, as soon as copying became possible, and of course, once it became digital, then the thing, they really freaked out because now you can make infinite copies of something with zero degradation. So they've, they've, they've constantly been trying to come up with these technologies to prevent copies, copy protection. And it's now we kind of refer to it generally as digital rights management or DRM. Uh, and that has become... It has infused everything that we do today. And that's so that this is, we're finally starting to catch up to a little bit of what's been going on recently, but 
I, yeah, I mean, so I'm an author. You're an author. When I when I first published my first book, you know, there was a little checkbox on Amazon saying, "Do you want to do DRM?" and and I had to think long and hard about that. And I, I admit, the first time that my for my first edition, I checked that box, and then after you mm-hmm. know the second edition, I'm like, you know what? Damn it, no, I I, I believe that this is not the right way to go. I'm I'm, I'm going to make this DRM free. And ever since then, I've got Google, you know, I've got Google Alerts set up for wherever my book pops up, and most of the pop ups I get are free download of of Carrie's book. You know, and mm-hmm. so that is kind of thing you know you live with. So that that's the trade off you want that we're having. Although but- I bet you that a ton of those are scams. I know when you go and click on those links, a lot of them are like, just give us your credit card number, <laughs> and we'll for to sign up for a one month free subscription, and you can and we'll give you this free book that we've offered the download of. And all they're doing is they're scraping Amazon and offering quote on they're like just making automatic web pages that say free download of X just to harvest credit card numbers. Wow. Yeah. And the other thing I think that people don't realize is that would, uh, when we went to digital, we've got HDMI cables, these lovely little single cables that that, that have all the audio video on them. They they are now laced with HDCP, which uh, high definition copy protection something. Protection. Yeah. And if you've ever gone to your computer or gone to your home AV system and switched from one source to another, and it got snowy all of a sudden or took forever to do, that's my understanding is on, is the, all this all this layered DRM in the background because they're trying very hard to make sure you're not actually connecting to something that's going to make a digital copy of that device instead. So so talk to us a little bit about uh, about DRM copy protection and 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 what this has meant for consumers. Sure. Well, so first a, a little bit of uh, a small gloss on what you said before. So you're right that the industry started freaking out when cassettes, you know, home taping was killing music and VHS came along and all the rest of it, but um, the difference between that stuff and digital is that uh, consuming a work in digital form involves making a copy. Right. So in other words, you cannot read a book without making a copy of it. You could listen to a, to a song without making a copy of it. But consuming a book, like just moving the book from one part of the storage on your Kindle to another or from the cloud to your Kindle or from you know a frame buffer to somewhere else – that involves making multiple copies, sometimes over the internet, between systems that are owned by different people. So that's a, that's a huge difference from copyright's perspective. Because mm. copyright's not triggered by reading, right? But copyright is triggered by copying. And so this is why now, like to, to build up to DRM, this is why in part, when you get a digital work, it comes with a long license agreement, <laughs> right? It comes with a thing that says like, you know, 20,000 words uh, sometimes of text. Which we all dutifully read, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly, right? And so those those agreements, they only exist because there is a copy being made in the process that isn't being made when you buy a book. Like when you buy a book in a store, there's like a sentence on the inside of the cover, all rights reserved, do right. not infringe copyright. But when you, um, when you download that book, you get 20,000 words of boilerplate saying, like, by being dumb enough to buy this book <laughs> in electronic form, you agree that we're allowed to come over to your house and punch your grandmother and wear your underwear <laughs> and make long distance calls and eat all the food in your fridge to disagree, to, you know, to disagree, uh, just, uh, st- or, you know, to agree, just stand there saying, no, 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 I don't agree. Uh, you know, like, so this is, you know, this is the, this is the crux here. And, um, there is this idea that has been popular since the mid nineties. Um, you know, it has its origins in like the eighties, but since the mid nineties, there have been business technologists. So people kind of straddle both worlds who said it would be really great if after we sold you a book or a song or a movie, we could control what you could do with it Mm -hmm. on your own computer. All right. And so ends part 
one of my wonderful interview with Corey Doctorow. That man is just fascinating. I love talking to that guy. And uh, he's always got some very interesting perspectives. And I love the way he phrases things. Uh, hopefully, you've learned a lot about copyright now and understand how much that affects really all of us. And especially now in the digital age, uh, it's, it's, it's prevalent. It's pervasive. It's something that we're dealing with all the time. And their ability to try to control how you consume all these digital works, your your Kindle books, your streaming movies, your streaming songs, all these things, it's all based on digital rights management, copy protection, DRM. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in part two. So stay tuned for that next week. But to wrap up the show, uh, for the tip of the week, I've got one little news story, and then I'll follow that up with what you can do about it. And that is about a really nasty Bluetooth vulnerability called Blueborn. Uh, Bluetooth is the wireless technology that most of us probably use on your smartphones that lets you uh, use those little earbuds to, to either listen to music or have conversations with a little wireless thing that sits on your ear. Uh, also, it allows you, you know, to connect your phone to your car uh, and things like that for kind of short range data exchange thing and audio uh, purposes. I use mine, honestly, all the time. Maybe you don't use yours, but essentially like Wi-Fi, it's this, it's this wireless standard in your phone, or by the way, this could also be in laptops. This could be in, in even desktop computers, uh, and your internet of things, devices, your smart thermostats, your smart, whatever, what have you. A lot of times they will have Wi-Fi for sure. Sometimes they have Bluetooth as well. Um, this, this wireless technology is mainly short range, uh, low data kind of, kind of stuff, uh, similar to Wi-Fi, but Wi-Fi is more long range and more, um, high bandwidth data. So, um, anyway, it's used in many, many, many places. Uh, but the, the one that's probably most likely to bite you here is, um, uh, your laptop and your smartphones, cause you're taking these out and about. So basically what these wireless things are, when you have these, when you have Bluetooth turned on, you've got a little radio in your phone or in your laptop that is constantly kind of broadcasting and listening, broadcasting and listening, looking for something it might want to connect to, or that might want to connect to it. And because of that, it's really if you have it on, it's it's actively doing stuff whether you can see it or not. And this Blueborn virus, uh, this vulnerability is so bad. It's actually a collection of like eight different vulnerabilities um, with one umbrella name. It's so bad that you just have to be in range of something that that is compromised, something that is trying to uh, hack your phone through Bluetooth can do it without you doing or noticing anything. It's really that bad. So this, this, this affects billions of devices around the planet. It's, it, it's a really bad thing, but there are some mitigating factors and, and there's also some good news. So the mitigating, one of the mitigating factors is, is because Bluetooth is short range, generally speaking, you have to be within about 33 feet of something uh, to, be, to be vulnerable. Now, with your smartphone, of course, when you're walking around, you're within 33 feet of Bluetooth devices all day long. Uh, same is true with your laptop. Now in your house, you're pretty good because if someone's within 33 feet of the stuff that's inside your house, they're probably on your lawn. So now maybe in an apartment, it might be a little different, but, uh, so the proximity does help somewhat. You have to be within a uh, certain proximity. The other good thing to realize is that most modern, uh, uh, the iOS devices, which is your Apple, um, tablets, your, your iPads and your iPhones, as well as Mac OS devices and most windows devices have already gotten patches put out for these things. So as long as you're up to date with your software patches on, on your iPhones, your iPads, your Apple computers, your windows computers, you should be safe. The real, and, and most modern Android devices as well. The trouble is with older Android devices. And there are a lot of them out there, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, a lot of them out there that can't even be updated. Uh, and then there's all these little, what we call internet of things devices, the, uh, these little smart plugs, 
uh, like we talked before, sometimes your TV, your DVR, your thermostat, these things that are, you know, you can connect to with an app. Uh, a lot of those things had Bluetooth built in as well. And the chances of them getting patches are pretty small. So when you add all that up, this article I read said some over 5 billion devices are at risk. So that's huge. Uh, again, let me read one quote from this article it says, according to researcher, uh, only 45% of Android phones, that's 960 million of them are patchable leaving 1.1 billion active Android devices older than Marshmallow, which is the 6.x release, older than Marshmallow, vulnerable. That's a lot of Android devices. So um, what can you do? Honestly, the only thing you can really do, well, there's two things. Patch, as soon as you can, if there's a security update, get that security update installed right away. If you've got an older device that can't be updated, honestly, the only thing you could do to protect yourself from this is just to turn Bluetooth completely off. Uh, and of course, that means you can't use Bluetooth. You can't use it for all the things that people like to use it for. You can't use it for wireless headphones. You can't use it for connecting your keyboards to your uh, or mice to to your devices. So I guess the, the the other part of that workaround is at least turn it off when you're not using it. Um, I unfortunately for me, I use mine all the time, but I've also got an uh, uh, an updated iOS device, so it's it's already safe. But generally speaking, what that's true with any of these wireless technologies, if you really want to be super paranoid because they will find more bugs in the future. Um, if you're not using it, turn it off. And I will say one last thing, if you have, uh, if you do have the latest Apple devices with iOS 11 on them, for some inexplicable reason, um, the little control panel thing that they've got where you kind of swipe up from the bottom and you've got quick access to things like airplane mode and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and whatever, you've got little buttons there to turn Bluetooth off and Wi-Fi off. And for some reason that I have yet to understand in iOS 11, when you turn those things off there, it doesn't really turn them off. It, it disconnects from everything that you were connected to, but the radios remain on. I don't get that. So, I mean, I kind of understand why they do it because Apple does all sorts of interesting things behind the covers using those technologies that they basically figure people won't understand why they stop working when, the, when, <laughs> when you turn these things off. So they kind of mimic turning them off by disconnecting you from most devices but that's not good enough. Certainly not in this case. So if you if you want to turn Bluetooth off on your iOS 11 Apple devices, make sure you go into settings and into Bluetooth and turn it off there. All right, everybody. And that's going to wrap up another edition of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Tune in again next week when I will have part two of my fascinating interview with Cory Doctorow, where we will get into the weeds and we will talk about digital rights management and how all these corporations are trying their best to control how you can consume the things that you think that you bought. <laughs> things that you own, things that you have paid money for, they still want to control forever how you use them. And that's called digital rights management. It's not all bad, but it's being abused. And we're going to talk about that and talk about a very specific recent thing that's going to affect your web browser, uh, where Cory Doctorow and the EFF uh, were so incensed that uh, they felt they had to do something rather drastic. So we will talk about that next week. In the meantime, as always, check out my blog at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. You can sign up for my weekly newsletter there where I send uh, other tips of the week and other information out to you once a week on Sunday nights. Of course, there's always my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, which you can find on Amazon uh, with well over 100 uh, tips complete with step-by-step -step instructions and pictures that will help you protect yourself and your privacy and those of your family and loved ones. Check that out as well. And finally, uh, if you want to help support me in this effort and my education effort to inoculate as many people as we can against these kind of security and privacy issues, go to patreon.com. You can find the link on the website. Go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. 
dot com slash firewalls don't stop dragons. Uh, you can find the link on my website. You can find the link on the America Out Loud website, and you can help me to help you. You can find out more information there on that. I would also like to take this opportunity to once again remind you I accept any and all feedback you have. If you want to suggest some topics that we can cover in the future, if you'd like to give me some feedback on things we've already covered, maybe some angle that you wanted me to hit that I didn't. If you have any particular questions, if you have any issues that you're uh, dealing with or things that you're worried about, uh, drop me a line. You can uh, find my email address on the website at americaoutloud.com. You can also find it at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Various ways you can reach out to me there. Uh, you can the easiest way probably is uh, send email to Carrie Parker at americaoutloud.com. And you can also go to, as I said before, if you go to patreon.com, there's also some from information there. If you sign up, uh, there's ways that you can give me some direct feedback there as well. And that's it. Until next week, everybody, stay safe. Don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Take care.